And if you'll find a seat, we will go ahead and get started with our latest uh, uh, session of How to Be Good and Angry. And you should have some notes for that. And that should say on the front cover, session 7, down at the bottom, and then page 46. And we'll get into that in just a moment. I wanted to let you know what's coming up over the next few weeks in this hour. We will finish this series next Sunday. So it's an eight-week series. Today is session seven. Next week we'll conclude. And then the first two Sundays of April, Dr. Combs is going to be teaching a two-week series called The Bible and the Future. So he'll be talking about some of what the Bible teaches about what's to come. That'll be April 2nd and April 9th. The 16th is Easter. We will not have this hour during East, uh, on Easter Sunday. We'll just have one service, 11 o'clock for worship. The following week on the 23rd, we'll start a new series. And that new series is called Anxious for Nothing. And that will be uh, on what the Bible teaches about worry. So two more weeks, today and next week, for our How to Be Good and Angry series. If you've not been able to be with us for the prior weeks, we have the previous six weeks notes in our resource center, which is out this back door and across the hallway, so you can pick those up. We also have the audio, always for these classes and our messages during the worship hour. All of those are always on our website, and you can get that by going to cbctrenton.com, and then under media, the pull-down audio, and then that'll take you to our archives for that. But we have seen thus far that we all struggle with anger to some degree, all of us do. And we all struggle with it because we all have this God-given capacity for anger. The ability to be angry was designed as a good thing. So as creatures made in the image of God, a God who has the capacity to be angry, we were made by God to reflect that ability to be angry. But it was considered, it was designed to be a good thing. It was an ability for us to see what's wrong, to evaluate what's wrong, and then to act to protect others against that wrong. That's loving. And we've seen in previous weeks that if God is loving, then God must get angry at evil. It is not loving to be passive in the face of of wrong. So we have this good ability, and it was designed by God to be good, and God demonstrates the good way that it can be exercised. But if you add in sin, you put sin in the mix, which is the case for each of us, now this good thing becomes distorted. Every good gift that God has granted to his image bearers can be distorted and is distorted. You take things like material possessions. God made matter. He made the world. He made it, the Bible teaches, for our enjoyment. But we can distort that. That the material world can become materialism. We can, in effect, be worshipers of the material world. By becoming materialistic in our approach to life. It's all about saving up for my retirement and my money, my money and my next vacation and all about pleasure and money and all of that. Using what God has given, but using it in a distorted way. Sex is a good gift that God gave, but it is horribly distorted 
by sinful image bearers. Work is another one. God gave work as a reflection of himself for us to be creative in it and for it to be an act of worship to God as we work. But work can become an end in itself. We become consumed in it. We become workaholics, we say. And anger is no different. You can make a long list of these. So instead of anger being what it was designed to be, namely, as we defined going back to session two on page 10 in those notes, instead of anger being the constructive displeasure of mercy, in the hands and in the attitudes and the minds of sinners, Anger becomes distorted to be not the constructive displeasure of mercy, but the destructive displeasure of self-centeredness. That is, we look at situations and we evaluate them and we judge them with this God-given ability, but not for the constructive purpose of showing mercy, but rather for the destructive purposes that we have in our own self-centered agenda. We carry this false judgment around with us. Many of you seated here and the one standing here carry around vestiges of anger. Low level, thankfully, for most of us. But it's there. For others, it's barely beneath the surface, just waiting for the slightest provocation to to become evident. We carry this false judgment around with us. Now, notice I say false judgment. Because as we've seen, anger always involves evaluation. It always involves our capacity to judge a situation, to evaluate a situation. But it's supposed to be for good. We're supposed to judge it rightly, but we don't. We do it in distorted ways, self-centered ways. So now we're carrying around this anger. That we've evaluated through our self-centered lens. Life is not the way it's supposed to be for me. People are not the way they're supposed to be to me. Life has dealt me a lousy hand. I'm ticked at life. Now, when I'm around you, I'm really nice. But I'm just carrying around in my inner recesses. I'm not, I'm not thrilled with life. I am not thrilled this is not a personal confession, by the way. I'm just... <laughs> but, you know, you're, we're walking around and we're not, we're not thrilled with the, the way it goes. And, you know, why do they have this and I don't? Why did that happen to me? It hasn't happened to them. And we just build up this, this animus toward life, just a general kind of carrying this baggage around with us. And it comes out. Now, to be sure, it comes out at different times and in different ways for each of us. We saw in a previous lesson that it comes out in different ways because we are different. We are different by nature. Some of us have personalities. They're not volatile. They're not boisterous. So our anger might be more muted, but it's nevertheless there. It might be the cold shoulder. It might just be that uh, depression that results from thinking about how life has not treated me well, and then I descend. But I kind of do it within myself. So we do it and express it different ways because of our nature, also because of our nurture, what we've we've had modeled in front of us. But we all express it one way or another. And we're carrying it around. So that means it can come out kind of unpredictably. 
it can come out with something triggering it because it's there to come out. And I called that several weeks ago, transfer anger. That something triggers it, finally it comes out, and there's some innocent object or person who's now going to take the brunt of that and are wondering, where did that come from? Well, where it came from is you're carrying it around. You've got it going on. I had this happen Friday morning. Uh, my family and I went away for two days, Thursday, Thursday through Saturday, Thursday afternoon through Saturday afternoon, uh, to Shipshawana. Um, you know, there's not much going on in Shipshawana in the middle of March, but still. We just wanted to get away because the girls are in college now. We don't get a chance to spend as much time together. And Laney, Annie was on spring break. Laney doesn't have classes on Fridays. So we made those plans. And we're glad we did. We had a good time. And I get up before they all get up whenever we're away because I'm in a hotel room with three women. So if I want to shower, I better do it early. So I get up early, you know, I shower, and I'm out in the lobby and I'm working on my laptop. And the lobby was just uh, 20 feet away from our, our room. And I'm working on my laptop, but I pull in my emails, and that morning I got a very distressing email. Very distressing email. Hey, it goes with the territory. Don't feel bad for me. I signed up for this. But it, it, it happens. And I get this distressing email that I've got to deal with. I've got to deal with now. It's a big deal. I've got to deal with it. So I'm dealing with it, and I'm having to email some other people and, and so on. And, you know, you're thinking about it, and it's your mind's going and all that. I don't know if the girls are up. I'm not even really thinking about the girls. I'm thinking about this. And then at some point, Kim emerges from the room, the room and she says, uh, Hey, we're, the girls are up. We're, we're about ready to, we're, we're ready to go or about ready to go. And I go, okay, I'll be done here in a few minutes. And she's always good about that. Okay. She goes back into the room. So I keep doing this thing. And now I'm trying to wrap it up. I'm trying to do it as quickly as I can. And then poor Lainey walks out of the room. She does not know that Kim and I have just had this exchange. It turns out. I didn't know she didn't know that, but it turns out she did. And she has her coat on. Now, this is like two minutes after Kim says. And she says, you ready to go? And she wasn't brusque about it. That sounded brusque. She said, really cute. Are you ready to go? And I looked at her like, you know, I'm trying to, I got to get this last couple sentences done on this thing. And she's got her coat on and these guys are really pressuring me to get going. And I just told Kim, you know, give me a few minutes. And, uh, but I start to get up. I instinctively start to get up. Now, these are the actions of a man who's lived with three women for all these years. <laughs> How high? <laughs> so I, I start to get up. But then I go, wait a minute, this thing I'm doing is really important. And I look at Lainey and I give her an ugly look. An ugly look. Uglier than my normal look. <laughs> a look such that she looked back at me like, that's an ugly look. <laughs> I don't like that. I'm not a fan of that look. And I say, I will be with you shortly. And I sit back down. I finish off my thing. I've made her feel bad. Now, I give you that illustration why. We had it, by the way, we talked about it and we made up on it and we found out she didn't know and she wasn't really trying to pressure me unnecessarily and all of that. But what was I carrying around? 
I'm carrying around this pressure to deal with. And then, you know, there's then these latent, undoubtedly, these latent feelings of, you know, do people really understand what I deal with? People understand what I got to do. You know, okay, just cut me some slack. Give me a break for a minute, will you? Undoubtedly, there's that going on as well. And you're carrying it around and transfer anger can occur to an innocent party. And in that instance, it it did. So today, with all of that, we want to see how it is we can change. How can we change? And you see at the top of page 46, that's the title of this section, how to change. And that means seeing your anger and your need for change. You probably had the experience of getting disoriented when trying to find your way in a strange city. You miss a turn, you find yourself completely lost. It's easier now with a GPS in your hand or car, but even that can send you down the wrong road. Compare that experience with missing a turn driving in your own neighborhood. When you're oriented, it's easy to double your, uh, to, to double back. You can even take a route you've never driven before. When you basically know where you are and the direction you want to head, you can come out okay. But when you're disoriented, you don't know left or right, backward or forward, which way to turn. When we get angry, our experience can resemble being lost in a strange neighborhood. We get disoriented by our experience of anger. But the difference is that we don't usually realize how lost we are. When we're self-righteous, now hear this, when we're self-righteous, we feel oriented even when we're completely lost. You feel and I feel justified in our anger. And I've said several times in this series, the more self-centered you are, the more things you will find to be angry at. The more things that you will evaluate as evil, as bad. Because you've got your own agenda and everything is evaluated in light of you, in light of that agenda. You practice that long enough, you will always in your self-righteousness feel oriented, even though in fact you're completely lost. And it takes other people to show that to you. You're going to have to have counsel from outside of you because you're messed up. You think you're justified. You've convinced yourself long enough that life has dealt you a bad hand. And ultimately, who's behind the life that you've been given? Ultimately, who is? God is, right? So you're angry at some level with God. When we're self-righteous, middle of that second paragraph, we feel oriented even when we're completely lost. When we play the terrorist or vigilante, the betrayed lover to get even, or the kid throwing a tantrum, we feel like we have a clear idea of what happened and what needs to be done now, but we're deluded. Anger deludes all of us. It is a brief or can be lifelong madness. Our bad anger shouts. Notice it's bad anger. We've seen that there is such a thing as good anger. That's what we want. But bad anger says, my kingdom come, my will be done. Judgment and wrath upon all who transgress against me. How does such madness become sane? How do you change something so deep-seated? How can something so hot-headed, so consuming, so willful be softened? How can something so instinctual, habitual, and automatic ever change? How can we be turned upside down and become right side up? How can this inflated sense of self ever shrink, becoming the true size of a human being? Well, we must be reoriented. 
So you've got orientation. And you've got disorientation that occurs because of sin. We've got to be reoriented. To be made new means dying to what's old. To be made new means awakening to new life. We might say it this way. You and I become Christians with respect to our angers. Oh, that hurts. Because what's that suggesting? In the way we carry our anger around and express it, we're not being Christian in the way we do it. So we need to become Christians with respect to our angers. We must stop, learn to stop complaining, criticizing, arguing, and being bitter and hostile. To do that, we need the mercies of Christ. And Christ, thankfully, freely gives himself to the needy. Because of our tendency to flip out and to revert to old ways, we need to enter lifelong rehab. The Christian life begins with an awakening. But it continues with a reorientation process. It presses forward until you see the see Jesus face to face. We are in process. Let me stop there for a moment. Do you guys hear clearly what that's saying? The Christian life has a beginning. It's initiated. But it's not then coast after that. This is a lifelong process. It's not a one-time flash and then you're changed. It's the beginning of a change process. Salvation coming to Christ is the beginning of lifelong change into the image of Jesus. And that will not be completed until we see Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm really pressing that because... You need to understand that what we're going to see here is something that you'll be doing, I'll be doing for the rest of our lives. We'll keep improving, Lord willing, as we grow into the image of Christ, but it's not a one-time flash. And there are models of sanctification that many of us have been exposed to that give us that false idea. Uh, One of those is, and I'm going to call it this, but please don't think I don't like camp. I don't like some camps. Camp can be fun, depending on what you do at camp and what's set at camp. But the camp experience or the conference experience, for many people, these are kind of spiritual highs. I go there and I have this change that occurs. I have this spiritual high point. But here's the problem. When you come home, there's life again. And a week later, two weeks later, you're reverting back to the same stuff. And you can't wait to get back to camp or conference because i got to have this. Now, again, camps and conferences can be great supplements to your Christian walk. But there is no magic bullet to the Christian walk, friends. The Bible does not teach that. It's the hard slog of confessing and repenting and seeing And seeking forgiveness from God and from others. It's that day by day. Being renewed daily. In the image of Christ. So please understand as we look through this. That's what we're going to see. In fact, bottom of page 46 tells us that. Many people have relearned to do anger. And had their anger significantly transformed. Each of them bears witness to the active hand of God. It takes his grace. And each of them bears witness to the diligence of humility. Humility, It takes grit. It takes grace and grit. You must be honestly and you must honestly and patiently wrestle with yourself. You must consciously choose to become a different kind of person. You must work it out over a lifetime. None of us will be perfect in this life, but each of us can grow. Any headway you make in the reorientation of your anger is worth more than any amount of money. The goal is to keep changing in the right direction. 
Some 500 years ago, the honest, wise, and very temperamental Martin Luther described it this way. This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam with glory, but all is being purified. It's a terrific way to put it. Notice there's no quick and final fix yet. Instead of one and done, there is a lifelong intentional process. There are lots of works in progress, lots of going somewhere, but not there yet. Notice all the I-N-G in what he's describing. Healing, becoming, growing, going. Now, if you'll skip that next paragraph, look at the one after it. The man who wrote the lines above was a German monk. He had struggled long with his volatile temper and with his fears, his lusts, depression, and guilt. Through it, he learned how the inner struggle works and works out. He learned how to get somewhere, not simply to flounder. He learned how to go somewhere good, not any old where. And you can learn too. Now look at the final paragraph before that subsection, looking into Scripture's mirror. It says, this session is going to look at the Scriptures and several key truths the Lord teaches us about how war becomes peace. This involves asking the question, questions, when God looks at your conflicts, what does he see? And how does God make right what is wrong? The scriptures reveal God's gaze, the criteria by which he continually evaluates human life. And they also reveal the means by which human problems are redeemed. So looking into scripture's mirror, the Bible is packed with stories and teachings about anger, conflict and alienation and how to solve those problems. Anything the Bible discusses frequently must be a universal struggle. We each put our own spin on sin, but the basic sins indwell us all. For example, Titus 3.3 3 offers this general assessment of the angry human race outside of Christ's rule. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Not a pretty picture. Some people are more civilized about it, some less, but we all look out for number one in some fundamental way and we collide with others who are doing the same thing. So consider the representative works of the flesh that are listed in Galatians chapter 5. More than half of the items described, listed there describe some aspect of conflict. Enmities and strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. Or consider 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. So when it comes to interpersonal conflict, all of us could introduce ourselves like participants in an AA meeting. You know how that goes? My name is Joe and I have a problem. And then you tell your story. Well, my name is Joe or Jane or Ken, and I get irritated. I get into conflicts. I rehearse grievances. There's no better place than to look in Scripture to understand anger, understand God, and to grow than in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. So you see there, why is it that you fight? The first three verses of that passage say, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires? The battle within you. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get 
on your pleasures. So James poses the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? So why do you fight? And notice he does not say you're fighting because the other person is a blockhead. Or because your hormones are raging. Or because a demon of anger took up residence. Anybody ever heard that? It's real. I mean, it's real that people say it's real. <laughs> that I have a demon of anger. And so they're kind of, they're, they're victims to a demon of anger. I met a guy years ago, uh, a guy named Cass at work. And Cass, turns out, was a Christian. He held a Bible study at work. He found out I was a Christian. And so he starts talking to me, and, and he starts telling me about this demon of anger he has. And I won't bore you with the whole story, but that was the first time I had heard people talk since then. I've heard and read about people saying, I've got a demon of such and such behavioral trait. But in Cass's case, it was a demon of anger. And after hearing this over a few weeks and talking with him about it, I said to him, Cass, I know your demon's name. It's Cass. He wasn't the boss, by the way. Just a co-worker, so I could tell him that. So James doesn't say it's because of a demon of anger that took up residence, because humans have an aggression gene hardwired by our evolutionary history, because your father used to react in the same way, because core needs are not being met, because you woke up on the wrong side of the bed and had a bad day at work. Instead, he says, you fight because your desires that battle within you. You want something and don't get it. The biblical analysis is straightforward and it cuts to the core. You fight for one reason, because you aren't getting what you want. And those desires dig in. You fight because you want what pleases you and what you expect and demand is being frustrated. The world gropes after this truth and yet at the same time it runs from it. Any thoughtful person can point out how people get into conflicts because of crossed expectations. It's not difficult to get people to articulate what their perhaps previously unspoken expectations really are. People can even evaluate and alter some of those expectations, so creating a more harmonious climate. But the core problem of self-centered craving is not really addressed. We just replace blatantly selfish expectations with subtle expectations. And the conflicts that cry out for a repentant heart before God are dealt with by ignoring the anti-God obsession that operates within all expectations and felt needs. Now you see that last line. The anti-God obsession. So you start to get the hint of where you're going to have to start and I'm going to have to start if we're going to change. This is, first of all, a God issue. It's, first of all, a God issue before it's a family issue. It's, first of all, a God issue before it's a co-worker issue or neighbor issue or classmate issue. It's, first of all, a God issue. And there's an anti-God obsession that we are carrying around because we want to say my kingdom come, not thy kingdom come. Next paragraph, some find the Bible too obvious and simplistic. Of course, people get angry when they don't get what they want. There's got to be something deeper that really explains this. But they miss a deeper thing. The expectations that lead to conflict reveal something fundamental about where the combatants stand, not just with each other, but with respect to God himself. In our demands, we stand for ourselves and against God at the deepest level. My kingdom come, my will be done. Nothing lies deeper than the lusts that lead to conflict. Now, when we say lusts there, that is not limited to, we almost exclusively use that word for for sexual desire. But when we use lusts here, 
it's just referring to intense desire, cravings, as it says in the next line, for anyone or anything. That would include sexual desire, but it's not limited to that. So nothing lies deeper than the intense desires that lead to conflict. Our cravings rule our lives. They directly compete with God himself for lordship. No problem is more profound and more pervasive. James 4.1 says that these desires battle in us. does not mean that desires battle against us or with each other. There are desires and they're expressing who we are. So that next subsection, then who are you when you judge? And this is now James 4, but 11 verses 11 and 12. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them, speaks against the law, and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So who are you when you judge? You're none other than a God wannabe. A God wannabe. Remember, we're always doing evaluations and we're evaluating whether things are right or not. But the more self-centered you are, the more things will not be right from your self-centered perspective. And who are you when you're doing that in this self-centered, enthroning yourself perspective? You're a God wannabe. We judge others, criticize, nitpick, nag, attack, condemn because we literally usurp God's throne. In this, we become devils to each other, acting as accusers. When you and I fight, our minds become filled with accusations. Your wrongs and my rights are what preoccupy me. We play the self-righteous judge in the many kingdoms that we establish. You are stupid. You've gotten in my way. You don't get it. You're a hindrance to my agenda. Think about it. What is an argument? Now, the word argument actually can be used in a good way. I mean, for example, the book of Romans, Paul's making an argument making a presentation for what the gospel is over against false notions of that. So an argument can be good, but most often when we use it, what is an argument? In an argument, you offend me by crossing my will. I respond by pointedly confessing your offenses to you. We're all good at confessing. It's just we're good at confessing other people's stuff to them more than confessing our own stuff. At the same time, I explained to you how all my failings are really your fault. If only you were different, I wouldn't be the way I am. You do the same to me, pointedly confessing my sins to me and excusing your own. Nowhere in the heat of conflict does anyone confess his own sins except as a way to buy time for a counterattack. Is that, is that right? I mean, you're in the heat of that, you know, and you're the one who's wrong. And, and then the only time you admit something, they make a point and you go, yeah, okay, I was wrong about that, but I'm just trying to regroup to come back at you. Yeah, I was wrong about that, but. So the log remains firmly planted in the eye. Skip that next paragraph. Then James 4.1 and 4.12 sound the two key themes that lie at the heart of conflict. Grasping demand and self-exaltation. Grasping demand. You're demanding things and you're grabbing for it. You're reaching for it. You want it. You have something you want it, James 4 verse 2 says. These are these desires. So you're grasping for something that you're demanding. These desires easily morph into demands. We're going to see in a little bit, even good desires morph, change into demands. 
grasping demands. And then self-exaltation. I place myself in the position of a God wannabe. Each of us says, in effect, my will be done and curses to you if you cross me. To find God's solution to conflicts, you must ask and answer the questions, what do I want and how am I playing God in asserting my will? Such a profound and explicit analysis of the vertical dimension in conflict will provide the key to beginning to unlock anger. The vertical dimension, that is between us and God. We focus on the horizontal dimension. It starts with the vertical dimension. As long as I remain only in the horizontal, there will be no genuine and lasting peace. This is the reason that secular forms of peacemaking cannot avoid being shallow. They often have some good strategies, things like clarify your expectations, listen well and repeat back what you've heard, phrase your concerns and objections in a non-condemnatory way, count to ten, communicate respect for persons amid disagreement, watch your body language. All that's all fine, but it doesn't go deep enough because... Without the vertical dimension, at best, one makes compromises born of of a somewhat more enlightened and mutual self-interest. Notice, enlightened and mutual, but what is it? Self, it's still self-interest. Humility before the living God and love for neighbor are impossible. But where conviction of sin before God occurs, genuine peacemaking becomes not only possible, but logical. Yes, the other person may have started it. What he said and did to you indeed may be worse than what you said and did back. But when God holds up a mirror, he shows you your participation in the conflict, what you bring to it, your pride, your God playing, and your willfulness. God's perspective reveals how the colliding wills of two petty wannabe gods lie at the heart of those quarrels and fights. All right, yikes. That's us. That's what's going on. But God gives more grace. Thanks be to God. What's wrong with what you desire? What's wrong with what you want and I want? What's wrong with what you want in your conflicts, both big and small? As we answer that question, we'll get to the heart of our conflicts and also get direction on how change can happen. Scripture, which is really the Holy Spirit's MRI of the heart, makes clear that it's not the good desires that are the problem. So it's not the desires, especially in particular the desires for something good. Notice this next sentence. It's when such desires rule that they produce sin, not love. When God sees into the heart of conflict, he sees the private kingdoms we each create. We each ascend to the throne, converting desires for blessings into the will of a God, small g. I crave, I need, I must have. Don't get in the way. We all fall prey to sin's insanity and self-defeating futility. So, for example, a husband might be willing to quarrel in order to get peace and quiet. You see, he, he wants something. He wants peace and quiet. Is that a bad thing? No. But if he wants it in such a way that it rules his heart, it produces sin rather than love. Or a wife might be willing to quarrel in order to get intimacy. Just time alone with her husband because she's been with the kids and she wants to talk to an adult. And there's nothing per se wrong with wanting either rest or intimacy. But when I want it too much, when it rules me, I sin against the ruler of heaven and earth. When expectations dig in, we inevitably sin against each other, not only God, but each other too. We think, I've got to have it. It's mine. I demand my rights. I need 
to meet my need. I need you to meet my needs. You're getting in the way of my precious, cherished longings. You're messing with my program to control reality. You're not meeting my expectations. So take a look down. Skip that next paragraph. Answer honestly questions like, what is it do I really want that are asked in the previous paragraph? And you'll have identified why you participate in sinful conflict. There are no deeper reasons for your sinful anger. Violation of the first great commandment, that is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the deepest motive of all. A husband can love that the, the good desire for rest more than he loves the living God. A wife can love the good desire of personal connecting more than she loves the living God. The husband may sin outwardly with a grumbling attitude and critical words, but those actions erupted from the craving for downtime. The wife may sin outwardly with a grumbling attitude and critical words, but that was poured out of the craving for marital intimacy. For both, as of them, for as for all of us, the horizontal sins register and they express vertical sins. It doesn't come out vertically until it first happened, or excuse me, it doesn't come out horizontally until it first happened vertically. If somebody commits adultery horizontal, they first committed adultery against God. Before you ever betrayed your spouse, you betrayed God. It always starts on the vertical level. And if you're going to get it changed, it's going to have to come in that direction. Bottom of page 50, those vertical sins are so serious that they merit the blunt labels the Spirit uses in James beginning in James 3.13 all the way to 4.12. Words like bad zeal, selfish ambition, pleasures, lust, envy, adultery against God. That's a metaphor for idolatry. Love of the world, pride, double-mindedness, and playing God. We are meant to live with God on the throne, with a wide-open heart to Him and to others. But a contentious, judgmental person has shriveled up inside, shutting down, to both God and neighbor. On the inside, a contentious person speaks rotten words that tear down rather than build up and condemn rather than give grace. On the inside, a person swept up in sinful anger has become, and look at these strong terms, but James uses strong terms like this, has become demonic and diabolical in the truest sense that is an image bearer of the hostile critic of God's people. An image bearer of the hostile critic of God's people. Who's the hostile critic of God's people? Satan, the devil. And then when we do his bidding, we're becoming his image bearer. Yikes. An image bearer of the hostile critic of God's people. God intends a different image. That we become bearers of mercy, redemption, and aid to others, even particularly in their sins. What happens when war makers come to see the significance and scope of this vertical dimension of conflict between you and God? Well, then we're brought up short. We're humbled for specific sins before the face of God. The searcher of hearts catches us by the collar and makes us look in the mirror, no wriggling away. So if you look down at what happens next, middle of that page, but he gives more grace. This is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. This is saying that in the midst of this raging battle that's going on inside of you and inside of me, that really begins with my relationship with God and me dethroning God and saying, this is the way it should be, not the way you have made it to be and not the circumstances you have placed me in and not the things you're allowing to happen. And so I'm carrying around this anger and it comes out horizontally because it first started there. But in the midst of all of that, there is grace for the humble. That paragraph says grace for those who ask for it. Instead of confessing other sins, you confess your own. Instead of proudly proclaiming your own rightness, you confess your many sins, failings and weaknesses and you ask for grace. Instead of railing against God when you don't get what you want, you can submit yourself to God and draw near to him. And the wonderful result is that, according to that passage, God will lift you up. God himself will show favor. He will begin to change you at the deepest level so that what you want reflects the rich, good life that God desires to give you. Now, let me stop there. You understand, friends, that the answer here then is not to stop wanting. It's to start wanting the right things. It's to start wanting what God has for you. It's to start accepting what God has given you. Rather than railing against it and complaining against it, even if it's just internal churning within us, we still are to have desires. We were made to have them, but those desires are to be changed by God. James explains the kind of peace then that follows internally that will then play itself out externally. James 3, 17 and 18. The wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What a change it is to experience God lifting you up and giving you his peace. What an amazing thing to be able to share the peace of Christ with others. Now, how does this change happen? It happens gradually and it happens over time, but it does happen. Every facet of the grace of God is tailored to make us new when we are angry, critical, fearful, and proud. In place of living deformed lives, we find the double cure for sin's guilt and power. Those who seek Jesus find true forgiveness. In Jesus, those who seek, ask, receive the spirit from our generous father. We will be reformed into the image of the Son who lived and died for us that we might live for him. Now, the next several pages are all about James 3, 17 and 18. So I want to encourage you to read pages 52 and 53 because it takes each of those phrases from James 3, 17 and 18 and shows you how those can be flipped in our vertical relationship with God, so that comes out in our horizontal relationships with others. But here's the practical result that will come out of that. Last page, page 54. Now you will exercise the constructive displeasure of mercy. Remember, that's what good anger is, the constructive displeasure of mercy. Bad anger is the destructive displeasure of self-centeredness. And when you start practicing, I start practicing the constructive, build-up displeasure of mercy rather than self-centeredness, these are the kinds of things that will happen. 
you'll learn to keep your mouth shut when you used to blurt out a reaction. You'll learn to listen when you used to be busy crafting a comeback. You'll learn to speak up courageously when you used to get intimidated. Because remember, anger will speak out. Righteous anger will speak out when something is wrong. You will embed any specific criticism of another in both appropriate commendation and Christ-centered optimism. I might have to... I might have to come to you. You might have to come to me and say, look, you're doing this wrong. This is not right what you're doing. But I want you to understand that I see you as my brother and my sister. I want you to understand that I see God's work in your life and I'm thankful for it. So as I come to you, this is not coming to you to condemn you. This is coming to help. And further, I'm convinced that you want that just as I want that. And I want you to do the same thing for me. And I know God's going to continue to work in you as he is in me. That's the optimism. That's the way you'll approach it. Not get your act together. What's your problem? You'll learn to treat people fairly, representing them accurately and recognizably. No gross caricatures. That is, you'll describe what they do with the most chari- in the most charitable and accurate way. You'll speak accurately and you'll abandon prejudicial language like always and never, which are rarely true and are invariably more destructive than constructive. You'll speak calmly rather than with gusts of inflammatory emotion. You'll speak frankly rather than inhibited by timidity. You'll raise an issue that you used to swallow. You'll be able to overlook an offense that used to explode over. Solve a problem rather than attacking the person. You'll expect to see Christ at work rather than despairing or panicking when trouble comes. You'll replace harsh words that stir up anger with gentle answers. Last paragraph on page 54. Real change in real life. Just as God's diagnosis maps onto real life, so we live out the cure in real life in real time. Words come clothed in a different voice. They carry a different attitude and a different intention. No longer adversaries and accusers, we begin to talk honestly about our own failings. We begin to love the the love of Jesus, to pray for each other and to worship the merciful one. There are three in every relationship. The one is perfect, good, and merciful, and he's at work. Wisdom is feet on the ground, every word out of your mouth practical. We're enabled to make practical, problem-solving decisions. Now, next week, next week is going to be devoted to answering the but what about questions that you've been asking if you've been awake through these seven weeks. Okay, fine, but what about... You know, this spouse of mine who, what about this or that? So I'm going to pose some of those. Hopefully there'll be some of the questions you've been asking. We'll seek to answer those and that'll be our final session. Okay, let's pray. Father, we're thankful to you for this blessed day to be together, but most of all, to be in your presence as your people, to be able to remember your character as symbolized in the bread and the cup of the Lord's table. Oh, Lord, we thank you that your character has reached down to do for us what we couldn't do. We do believe, Lord, that you are absolutely just, that you are a holy and righteous God. We thank you, Lord, that you in your love desire to be the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You've done both of those in the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are the blessed recipients of that. So help us to live that way. Help us to live like people who have been given lavishly more than we could ever imagine. 
Help us then, Lord, to not seek to dethrone you in our hearts, but to love you because you have first loved us and to enthrone you and to submit to you. And may that have then the transformation that James chapter 3 talks about in each of us. May we work out practically the wisdom that comes from above in our relationships with each other. Oh, Lord, begin that this week in us. May it show tangible fruit even in our workplaces and homes this week. And we ask you to grant us safety and to bring us back together next Lord's Day. In the name of Jesus, amen.